like to welcome you to Prairie View Christian Church. I'm glad you've chosen to worship here with us this morning. Over the past three weeks, uh, we've been doing a sermon series called Awkward. And the whole idea is that we've been discussing some awkward topics that often we are tempted to just ignore as people and as Christians. And the church is often tempted to just not really talk about these things, not address these things because they could ruffle some feathers, they could lead to some controversy, all kinds of different reasons. And the past two weeks, we've covered two controversial topics, the first one being homosexual practice, and then last week, we covered abortion. And we talked about what we believe God has to say about those topics. What does Scripture teach about those topics? That's been our goal, to just try and figure out not what society says, not what the latest trend is, but What wisdom does scripture offer us as we as followers of Jesus try to think through these very, very sensitive things? And all along, we've been talking about how this morning was going to be a time of questions and answers. Uh, Throughout the past two weeks, we've encouraged you every morning to send in your questions. Send in your questions to me so that we can talk about them, so that we can think about them, so that we can address them. And the whole point of Sunday morning, June 28th, today, would be to talk about those questions. So that's what we've been doing. We've been accepting questions. Joshua and I have been getting together and talking about questions. And that's what this morning is for. I know it's going to be a little bit different than usual. I've never done something like this before. Many of you may not have ever done something like this before, but we're just going to see how it goes. And I pray this is fruitful for you and it's a good experience for us and that all of us can leave here a little more educated, a little more encouraged to try and think biblically about things like this. Now, of course, the question could be asked, why do a question and answer morning? What's the point? What's the value of it? Well, there are a few reasons why we wanted to give this a shot. Number one, we simply wanted to know what questions you as a congregation have. Because in the big scheme of things, we as church leaders, myself as a preacher, we're here to serve you. And we're here to assist you as you strive to think about tough topics, as you strive to live as a faithful follower of Jesus in a world that is quickly changing. We wanted to know what your questions are. Another thing is that we want Prairie View to be a place where Christians can feel free to wrestle through hard questions together. We want this to be a place where if you have questions, you don't have to be scared to ask those questions, even if they're sensitive, even if they're awkward, even if they're controversial. And then on top of that, throughout this whole sermon series, we've wanted to show that Christians can get together, they can ask tough questions, they can talk about difficult topics, and we can do it in a way that is humble and compassionate and reasonable and biblical. That's been the goal throughout this sermon series, and that's the goal this morning as well. Now, as far as how this is going to work, this question and answer time, Uh, Some of the questions will be covered by me and some of the questions will be covered by Joshua. I asked him a couple months ago to tackle this morning with me because I thought he would have some good insight, have some valuable thoughts. And so Joshua and I got together this past week for four hours at which which and talked through all the different questions that were submitted, all the questions that we thought were important to cover. So he'll cover some. I'll cover others. Uh, Unfortunately, we will not be taking any questions this morning on the spot from you all. Now, that's not because we don't want to. 
It's not because we're scared to. It's mainly for the sake of time and also so that we can give answers that are actually well thought out and reasonable and prayed through and researched, that kind of stuff. We want to give you good quality answers. And there's no guarantee that we can do that if we're put on the spot. Now, one thing you'll notice is that we really don't have any questions at all about abortion. Last week's topic, all the questions we received were about homosexual practice. And that's really not that surprising because that's certainly the bigger lightning rod issues these days. But it's not because we don't want to talk about it. It's just simply not where the questions went. So with that, if you have more questions, don't feel like, well, I missed out on Sunday morning, the 28th. So I can't ask questions until they have another question and answer time. That's not the case. If you leave this morning and you have questions that were left unanswered, if you leave this morning and you've developed new questions that you didn't really think about before, by all means, feel free to talk to us. Feel free to talk to me. We want to welcome questions and not just forget all about this just because the sermon series is over. So with that, I think we're ready to start. Uh, I'm going to start off with prayer and then we will move forward with some questions and answers. So if you would, please pray with me. Father, we're grateful that you've given us a place where we as followers of Jesus can come together and we can search your word together. Uh, we can ask difficult questions and seek out what you would have us think and seek out what you would have us believe uh, on the things that occur around us. Um, God, it's impossible to be a faithful follower of your son, Jesus, and isolate ourselves from the world around us. So. As a result, we have to think about these things. And I pray that this morning and the past two weeks uh, that you would just help our thinking and help our questions and help our prayer uh, bear fruit. I pray this would be fruitful for everyone participating this morning. I pray that we would never lose sight of the gospel uh, as we think through these questions and these issues that it would constantly be coming back to your son, Jesus, nailed on a cross for the sins of the world. So, God, thank you again for this time, for the privilege we have of discussing these things and talking about these things and thinking through your word. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. I'm going to let Joshua cover the first question, and that is in our first main area. And that main area is the question of orientation. When Ben first suggested the idea of doing a Q&A, I was pretty nervous because um, he was going to be all well-researched and thoughtful and prayed through, and then I was going to get up here and say something dumb or flippant or ignorant or uh, unintentionally offensive, and that may yet happen. And uh, so he may feel the need to ask a question on the spot to make sure that I uh, don't say anything I ought not, or at least that I have the chance to fix it if I do. Uh, fortunately, Aaron made me aware of an even bigger risk. When I sit back in the corner listening to Ben preach, I can take notes and look stuff up and frown and scowl and close my eyes and roll my eyes and any of that good stuff nobody can see except Ben. And she made it clear to me that uh, sitting on my perch on the stool, I would not be able to do any of that. And so I've been practicing my reverential puppy dog eyes all week long. And Ben can show you how that's done while I talk about orientation. Now, when you hear a message like Ben's two weeks ago, that homosexual practice is sinful and clearly sinful in scripture and continues to be so, one of the initial gut reactions is, you know, that's the way I am. That's the way I was wired. That's how I've always been attracted. That's just naturally who I am. Now, one of the things about culture is that we all just 
breathe it in without being aware of or examining the basic assumptions that are underlying it. And um, there are going to be times when our authority, the Bible, says one thing, and literally everybody else in the world says the opposite, or at least everybody in polite Western society. And uh, the one at work here this morning on this topic is that if something is natural, then it is good. If you go to the store, you can see that you know, all natural this is good and artificial whatever is bad. And that is uh, something that came out of the Industrial Revolution. We realized pretty quickly that if we weren't careful, we could ruin nature. And so nature became valued and then romanticized and then idealized and uh, now essentially worshipped. And that's not a completely bogus idea because God made this world beautiful and we're supposed to be good stewards of it. But... Living inside it, we can sometimes fail to grasp how profoundly nature is cursed and corrupted. In Genesis 3, the effects of sin fall not just on Adam and Eve and the serpent, but God says, cursed is the ground because of you. Paul tells us in Romans 8 that God has subjected creation to futility until the time when he makes all things new. Back in the grocery store, E. coli, cyanide, all natural You don't want them in your yogurt, right? Whereas pasteurization is an unnatural process, but it is one of the greatest public health achievements of the last hundred years. The point is that being natural doesn't make something automatically virtuous. Those two don't go together. Being born a certain way doesn't automatically carry God's blessing because none of us are born perfect and innocent. The effects of sin are at work, even in the womb, even in the expression of our genes. So... The question, is it true that people with a homosexual orientation are born that way? The straight answer is, it doesn't matter. Some may be, some might not be. And some Christians have worked really hard to theorize that same-sex attraction is a uh, mental disorder or some sort of acquired pathology or a choice, as though if it's a choice, then we're responsible for it, but if it's something that we're born with, then we're not responsible for it. And that line of thinking isn't helpful because it's just not true. It's um, orientation might be natural, but that doesn't make it right. Not that orientation itself is the sin, not a sin to be tempted or attracted. It's putting that into practice, homosexual practice, that is the sin. But everyone, we're all born with our own inclinations and partialities, and we are all responsible to keep all of God's law. And we all fail before the standard of God's righteousness. Homosexual persons aren't uniquely bad, but they do have a particularly challenging walk in this life. In Christ, we are given new life, and God has begun his work of restoration in each of us, renewing our minds, giving life to our spirits, and even transforming our desires. And how that works out on an individual basis is going to be different for each one of us. We didn't practice our transitions. Can I leave my paper here and you bring your sure. fancy do that sure. over? Okay. That leads pretty well uh, into our next question, uh, which is one that I think is really common when it comes to a topic like this. Um, is it possible for someone with a homosexual orientation to convert to a heterosexual orientation? So, uh, is it possible? Yes, it is. Uh, someone like Rosaria Butterfield is an example. Uh, she is an author, blogger, uh, was a lesbian, and then later came to know Christ. Uh, and over time, found herself attracted to men, found herself married, uh, now has kids and a very fruitful, God-honoring marriage. And she goes around and 
talks about and writes about her experience uh, of that change in her life. So is it possible? Yes, because it, it's, it's happened. Rosaria Butterfield is an example. You can't just say that it doesn't happen if the example is standing right in front of you. So is it possible? Yes, but should it be expected? I think is really maybe the bigger question. And the answer there is no. Uh, Russell Moore, who is a theologian that I really like, said something along these lines. The gospel never promises us that all temptation will be removed. It promises us that we can walk faithfully to Christ through temptation. So the guarantee is not, well, if you become a follower of Jesus, then automatically you'll find yourself desiring to be with the opposite sex. You'll find yourself wanting to have kids and buy a nice little New England-style house and build a white picket fence and own a dog and live the perfect little happy traditional family. That's not really the promise that we're given. What we are told is that when we become followers of Jesus, we will still wrestle with temptation. We will still have to deal with sin. So no, someone who becomes a follower of Jesus is not automatically overnight going to become heterosexual. There are many homosexual Christians who to this day never have felt attraction to the opposite sex. What are we to do? We're called to walk with them through that temptation. We're called to walk with them as they strive to be faithful to Jesus in spite of the temptations that they face. So is it possible that someone can become heterosexual? Yes. But should it be expected? Should it be forced? No, it shouldn't be. The gospel simply never makes that promise. So. That wraps up the orientation section. If you've got more questions, of course, like Ben said, you can... I turned myself off so that you wouldn't hear me breathing over there, and then I'm going to have to remember to switch that back on. If you have more questions, of course, like Ben said, get them to us uh, later on. Uh, it takes us into our second section, which is uh, the whole category of double standards. We got a bunch of questions and we sort of grouped them into different categories. And quite a few of them came in the area of double standards. And uh, particularly, Ben asked me to talk about enforcement. Do we, Christians, are we guilty of holding a double standard for homosexual practice compared to other sexual sins, such as cohabitation, divorce, and sex before marriage? And that sort of breaks down into a few different ways. When it comes to people's behavior, do we prioritize same-sex sins over heterosexual sins? Is the church too obsessed with sex in general while ignoring the whole universe of non-sexual sins? And what do we do about those chunks of the Old Testament that talk about sins in pretty clear terms that we completely ignore and never talk about or address anymore at all? Now, I'll start with a quote from Jonathan Parnell, who is writing for the Desiring God website. And he says, it is an oversimplification to say that Christians are simply against homosexuality. We are against any sin that restrains people from everlasting joy in God. Homosexual practice just gets all the press because at this cultural moment, it's the main sin that is so freshly endorsed in our context by the powers that be. Now, for 2,000 years, every strand of Christianity across the whole world has always found that Homosexual practice is sinful and recognize that from the scriptures, with the exception of the last generation in the Western portion of the world. So nothing, nothing has changed in church world. And if it seems like the church is banging a drum on this issue, it's because the culture is calling the tune. And uh, 
contemporary standards have shifted around us, but that uh, doesn't mean that we're the ones that have changed. They've changed, and it's sort of an easy way of pointing the finger at them. But, um, yeah, they're sort of surprised that anybody got left behind. Now, on the other hand, it is relatively easy to take a firm moral stand on an issue when it seems far away. When the gays are just those people on Broadway in San Francisco, then it's pretty easy to condemn that kind of behavior. And there was a time when you could get away with thinking that. Of course, it hasn't ever been the case, and it certainly isn't now. It's much harder to draw a moral line in the sand on an issue when it is somebody you know that is, for instance, going through an unbiblical divorce, pursuing an unbiblical divorce or a remarriage. When it's somebody that you worship with, and you know that there's something not right in their marriage relationship or something not right in a non-marriage relationship, there's a strong temptation to just stay quiet. Don't ask questions. Don't rock the boat. It's a, a classic fear of man situation where I value my cordial and pleasant relationship with you more than I value your eternal soul and God's authority, and so I'm not going to ask any awkward questions. And I've been that coward who didn't ask any questions at a time when I knew something wasn't right and something needed to be said. So there, there is a real tendency to leave sin unquestioned. A few years ago on the elder team, we had three marriage, divorce, cohabitation situations right on top of each other. And we sort of looked at each other and wondered, is this the only thing that we care about? Are we ever going to talk about anything else? Does anything else matter? Is the guy who is uh, proud and lazy and crabby, is he going to skate by? Am I going to skate by as long as none of my sexual sins come to light? Some of that is just awareness. It is much easier to look at a couple and discern that they are rather too familiar with each other than it is to discern that one of them has an unforgiving spirit and the other is struggling with envy. But ultimately, the problem is not the sin itself, whatever it is, whether it's homosexual practice or impatience. The problem is the refusal to repent. That's what keeps people separated from God, and that's what causes a division in the church body if it comes to that. Last aspect of the uh, first part of this category. Uh, why do we harp on certain Old Testament sins uh, but completely ignore others? Leviticus is very clear about not eating shellfish and not wearing fabrics woven from different kinds of materials. There is a meme floating around Facebook earlier this week, and that was the gist of it. If we're going to ignore these laws and these commands and these punishments, then we are morally obliged to ignore anything else that Leviticus might have to say and cheerfully accept marriage equality with a smile. It's painfully simplistic, but it keeps coming up, and Facebook is an ideal environment for that sort of thing. Uh, so here is the one-minute answer to that particular line of thought. The first five books, the Torah, contain eternal principles of God's character and nature, his moral law. It was also ancient Israel's civic code, and their handbook for religious practice. And we saw in our sermon series from Hebrews this spring that the religious ceremonial laws are fulfilled and complete and done. Christ has accomplished those, and they are all wrapped up. The civil laws were applicable in the ancient Israelite context only. The principles were eternal, like Mark talked about. There's a principle of God owns everything and we honor him with our wealth. But the 10%, 10%, and another 10% every three years, we aren't bound by that in this time anymore. But the moral law, the revelation of God's character, 
That is timeless and eternal. And Ben talked about that two weeks ago. We were looking at Jesus and the woman caught in adultery in John 8. He affirms God's moral law. Adultery is a sin. Go and sin no more. But he sets aside the requisite execution. Neither do I condemn you. Sushi and yoga pants are not eternal issues. It's just a temporary illustration that God's people must be clean and holy and separate. And we are in Christ. But uh, the principles of marriage, being faithful and pure, that is built into creation itself, affirmed from the beginning to the ends of the Bible, and that transcends all cultures and times. I disagree in one area. Um, yoga pants aren't an eternal issue because if I wore them, you could never get that sight out of your mind uh, in eternity. So um, one of the questions uh, that basically Joshua addressed is, is there a double standard in terms of the church's willingness to enforce biblical teaching on these issues? Um, another question that is very, very similar is, is there a double standard in terms of the church's willingness to even address biblical teaching on these issues. So we're not talking about enforcement. We're not talking about expecting people to live by certain biblical standards. We're talking about, is the church even willing to talk about this stuff? Well, sometimes there is that double standard. And yes, we need to repent of that if that's the case. Now, why would we not address some biblical teachings when they're clear as day and yet choose to address other biblical teachings? Maybe it's fear, like Joshua said, a fear of man issue. After all, you think about it, in most churches these days, realistically, there probably aren't a ton of people struggling with homosexual practice in positions of leadership or giving a lot of money. Thus, preachers like me probably aren't scared to address those things. But when it comes to issues like divorce and sex outside of marriage and cohabitation, Those kinds of issues do more commonly affect the leaders of a church, the big givers of a church. And so it would be very tempting for a preacher like me to say, you know what, I'm not going to address the sins of people who write big paychecks to the church because that could affect my paycheck. That is a fear of man issue. And if that's a temptation that I find myself giving into, that any preacher finds themselves giving into, then we need to repent of that. The answer for this problem of double standards is not just us saying, okay, well, we haven't done a great job addressing cohabitation and divorce and sex before marriage, so we better not try and address homosexual practice at all. The answer is that we need to have more biblical teaching on those other things. Instead of lowering our standards in one area because we've failed in our standards in these three areas, we need to be more biblical about all of them. A few weeks ago, we talked about Hebrews 13, which is the passage that we talked about where the author says that the church is called to honor the marriage bed. And we briefly mentioned that if we don't take the sanctity of marriage and the importance of sexual ethics for followers of Jesus seriously in one area, then why would we as a church be taken seriously when we speak about it in another area? Have there been times where there have been double standards? Yes. 
Have there been times where churches have been scared to address controversial topics, scared to enforce biblical teachings about controversial topics because they don't want to upset the large givers? They don't want to get on the bad side of the leaders who can fire them? Has that happened? Yes. And if that has happened, and when that does happen, we need to recognize that and we need to repent of that. Not weaken our stance on other issues to bring them into line. We need to be more biblical on all of our stances and bring them into line in that way. So we have one more question in this area of double standards, and I'll let Joshua cover that. Before I move on to that one, uh, this is the awkward sermon series, so uh, here comes perhaps the awkwardest bit that I'm going to say. We talked about other sexual sins like cohabitation, divorce, sex before marriage. Uh, We want to really hit people where we are and address people with what we know statistically people are challenging, uh, challenged with and struggling with. Internet porn and romantic literature, that's... I can feel myself going, ah, as I say it, because I'm saying this out loud in front of a group of people. That's awkward, okay? But don't, don't go there. That's not good. That's not going to help your marriage any at all. Okay. <laughs> Positive examples. We got these, this double standard, uh, perhaps we've said, we both acknowledge certain aspects of. So if we know what we're against, then what positive example can the church provide and set for, uh, for people to see? If we want to be holding up traditional, even biblical marriage as the standard, what is that that we should be doing? Is the biblical model of marriage antiquated and oppressive, or is it timeless and eternal? We received as many questions, uh, content-wise, about traditional biblical marriage as we did about same-sex attraction. And that actually makes a lot of sense, because most of us are, or have been, or will be in a traditional marriage. And it's hard. It is the union of two selfish sinners. Christian marriage in particular is looking more and more bizarre to the watching world. The concept of a husband who completely spends himself for his wife and family, uh, willing not just to die for them, but to live for them and uh, give everything for them, even when it's not going well, shouldering responsibility for their complete welfare. That's odd and unusual. The wife is even stranger. A wife who is willing to take all of her abilities and priorities and resources and voluntarily place them under the responsible headship of that guy, whether he's any good at shouldering that responsibility or not, that's also pretty weird. Both of them seeking to outdo the other and showing honor and uh, sacrificial love and service, even when it's not going well. That, you're not going to find that on the grocery, uh, on the magazine rack at the grocery store. It's, it's pretty strange. So, When we think about what we do want to be holding up, let's consider an ideal situation and let's aid our imaginations by putting a name and a face on it. Let's consider my daughter, Bree. We saw her baptized last week, so we know that she knows that she's a sinner and that she needs God's ongoing, sustaining grace in her life. She lives with her mother and I, so she knows that she has a daily need for both repentance of sin and forgiveness of sin uh, on her part and on our part. Now, suppose she marries a gentleman from uh, a similar background, grows up in the church, fairly relatively functional family. He loves Jesus. He's reformed. He's complementarian. He hates the patriots. He's a good guy, right? And so they share an eternal perspective on marriage and all of its challenges. Money and work and time and sex and children. They get good premarital counseling, that's on you, and they even end up in a good church with a solid, small group. 
Okay, is that the positive example of marriage that we want to set before the culture? And the answer is, resoundingly, no. That is not all that we have to offer. For one, it's exceedingly uncommon. Second, even if Aaron and I were able to deliver Bree to the altar with an undamaged psyche, and the ship sailed on that a long time ago, she's still going to be one selfish sinner marrying another. One of God's purposes in marriage is to have those spouses expose hidden layers of selfishness that only living with somebody else can ever bring to light. Every Christian is still subject to the sinful nature. The enemy is always going to be trying to undermine and tear down strong, successful Christian marriages. And the outside world always trying to be stuffing us into their mold. Now, the hope and example that Christians can offer is not that we have a better plan and scheme of marriage. We do, but that's not, that's not the point. The positive Christian example is not a good boy and a good girl with a bright future. The promise of Christian marriage is that it is a marriage where Christ is at work. It's two train wrecks merging their lives onto the same track, not having a clue what they're doing, but by God's grace and with the help of his community, becoming a beautiful picture of God at work. The Christian marriage is compelling and hopeful, not because... We can put our best moral behavior into making it work, but because Christ is at work in it. Now, our culture isn't just wrong about same-sex marriage. They're wrong about classic traditional marriage as well. Go to the bookstore and see how badly they recognize that they need help. Will all the homosexual couples that get married this year find the dignity and satisfaction and meaning that they are longing for? Will the heterosexual couples that get married this year find fulfillment, find their fulfillment in marriage? And the answer is no. Marriage is an awful God, and your spouse is a poor savior. We are arrogant if we think that we know better about marriage and sex and ourselves than the one who created them all. It's his design, and he gave us marriage to teach us about himself the relationship between him and his people, and uh, our need for him, and how we can flourish in human relationships. Christian marriage works because it draws us beyond God's good gift to the giver himself. And that is, I hope, that is worth pursuing and worth sharing with others. I'm going to move through this question pretty quickly. Um, I don't want to skip over it. But I think it's really important uh, because this is a common thing that we're seeing these days. Uh, This is really a question of history, uh, and it's often presented as a common form of opposition to homosexual practice. And the question often goes something like this, or the proposal, rather. Is it true that today's version of homosexual practice is much different than what was seen in the Bible? Another way of putting it, is it true that back then homosexual practice was only seen in exploitative, non-consensual and abusive relationships? Maybe even a third way to put it. If Old Testament authors, if Jesus, if Paul saw monogamous, loving, sacrificial same-sex relationships, would they still have opposed homosexual practice? The reason we bring that up is because some people argue that when the Bible addresses homosexual practice, it's only referring to terrible ancient practices that really nobody would defend in 2015. We're talking practices about men raping men for the sake of humiliation and power. 
We're talking about men having sex with young boys. We're talking about religious practices involving temple prostitutes. That's the kind of stuff that the Bible condemns, not sacrificial, loving, homosexual relationships that we see today. That's the proposal. That's the opposition. And while biblical writers certainly condemned those practices, do not be mistaken, biblical writers did not condemn just those practices. In 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, a passage that we talked about two weeks ago, there's a word that is translated in your English translations, most likely along the lines of men who practice homosexuality. The word there is arsenikoites. And that's actually two words put together. Our sin is Greek for uh, man. Koites is Greek for bed. And so if you really want to be very, very straightforward when translating that word, the way to translate it is man betters or men who take other men to bed. Now, when you look at that term, I think it's safe to say and scholars agree that that is not limited to just situations of rape or abuse. That's not just limited to young boys who have no consensual ability to go along with this. It's not just limited to temple prostitutes where people think, okay, if I do certain things with this temple prostitute, then the gods will be more likely to grant my request. That's not just limited to those situations. And on top of that, one common idea these days is that monogamous, sacrificial, loving, Homosexual relationships didn't exist back then. They didn't know what that's like. That's simply bad history. Those relationships did exist back then. In Plato's Symposium, written in 400 B.C., we see records of loving, sacrificial, monogamous homosexual relationships. And yet biblical writers still condemned the practice with a broad, broad term. So when you see that idea these days that, well, our version of homosexual practice is loving and romantic and committed and sacrificial, all these things. If you see that idea and then people say, but those kinds of relationships didn't exist back then. If those relationships did exist back then, then Paul and Jesus and Old Testament authors, they would have been totally on board with it. It's simply bad history. It's a poor form of opposition. And it's something that we as followers of Jesus should know as we're facing a lot of different ideas and a lot of different arguments for or against homosexual practice. So, something to consider. All right, this is my last one, and then Ben's got one more, and then we'll bring this to a close. Uh, This is the whole section of public policy. How should Christians and the church interact with... um, the public policy on this issue at the societal level, what happens when you have to interact with this issue when you get the wedding invitation, what happens when you're interacting one-on-one uh, with other people in social media in particular. Uh, so this was always going to be included, even before the Supreme Court decision this week. It's one thing to understand that homosexual practice is sinful. Is that a conviction that we just have to keep inside these doors and inside our homes? Or is that something that we owe it to society at large to share God's wisdom with them? We know that we're supposed to love and serve our community, especially uh, the homosexual persons in our community who've, frankly, received a lot of the opposite from the church in the past. Do we best love and serve people by advocating for legislation at the society level that prevents people from doing what God says they ought not do? Or is it better to pursue heart change on an individual level? Are those two things mutually exclusive and counterproductive? We can find a lot of 
principles in the Bible, but relatively few clear-cut answers. Uh, There are some. Jeremiah tells God's people when they're sent to Babylon to live in a hostile culture, work for the welfare of your city. Peter and Paul tell uh, tell us to pray for our leaders and submit to their godly authority. And that was not just their godly authority, their God-given authority, whether they exercise it well or poorly, which in Peter and Paul's day, they were exercising very poorly. Uh, Paul talks about the church as a pillar of truth, and Jesus calls for us to be a city on a hill. Uh, but those principles are lacking in specifics. The mission of the church is to go and make disciples. That happens one at a time. The mission of the church is not to retake America for Jesus. Uh, that It's only on the personal level that the gospel goes out. Now, how will that play out on this issue? Some things are pretty straightforward. Prairie View will not officiate, bless, or host a same-sex marriage ceremony, mostly because that's not so much a wedding as it is a a commitment on the part of those two people to defy God and devote themselves to unrepentant sin. And that leads to the most obvious arena for advocating for public policy, and that's in area of religious freedom. The court's dissenting opinion, especially from the Chief Justice, had very perceptive things to say about the way the majority opinion would be used to stifle free religious expression. Now, we've seen this year in Indiana that religious freedom laws are very, very tricky to get right. If they are written too broadly, then they can allow for a very wicked form of discrimination. And maybe not everybody here will agree, but I'm going to say it anyway, uh, that discriminating against gay people, individuals or couples, on the basis of orientation in public services is completely abhorrent, and Christians should vigorously support anti-discrimination legislation in areas like dining and hospitality and employment and um, routine business. But that's a very different question than whether Christian businessmen and women should be compelled to participate in same-sex ceremonies, or whether churches and schools will be allowed to exercise their religion freely when it comes to things like hiring and teaching. But it's worth remembering, even if we get religious protection, we're still going to be subject to the marketplace, those bakers and florists and schools. It won't be long before any enterprise that takes a stand on a moral issue is going to be run out of business simply from a lack of customers, whether there's legal protections or not. Another area that takes wisdom is what to do when the inevitable happens and you get that wedding invitation to a same-sex ceremony. Do you accept and keep that relationship open, knowing that it's going to require ongoing hard conversations with them? Do you decline, not blessing the happy couple with your presence and knowing that you might be imperiling that relationship? That is not a question that has an obvious answer, I don't think. It depends on a lot of things. How close you are, how well you know them, what the relationship is going to do based on which decision that you make. That's not something where I can say you always need to do one thing or the other. That's going to take the application of wisdom. Last point. Whatever you do, wherever you are, speak the truth in love. Don't be a coward. And don't be obnoxious. Kevin DeYoung probably put it more eloquently when he said, don't be shrill and don't be silent. Apparently, this is very difficult to get right on social media. It's easy to speak the truth in a way that is true and obnoxious. It is easy to um, err on the side of love and not say anything at all and chicken out and just say nothing. When you see somebody being an idiot on Facebook in the name of God, 
call them on it. Don't blast them on the spot, but engage them on that separately, saying what you were doing. You might be saying the right things, but you're saying them in a way that's very counterproductive, unhelpful, and not glorifying to God. Engaging in civil discussion while maintaining a high level of courtesy, even when being provoked and slandered, is something that Christians, like me, need to be growing in. To tell somebody that you are wrong, but you are loved, is a tricky thing to do. But that's what God has said to us. And we've heard him say that, that we are wrong. We are so wrong that he sent his son to pay for our sins so that we can be reconciled to him. And we are so loved that he sent his son to die for that. So we've been on the receiving end of you are wrong and you are loved. And that's something that we need to learn to share with others as well. The final area uh, that we're going to talk about is the area of ministry. Uh, Because, again, we need to know not just where do we stand on these things, what do we believe about these things, but how are we going to minister to people in a world that is quickly and drastically changing right before our eyes? So how can we maintain a relevant and effective and fruitful ministry to the world around us? Uh, The question can sometimes go like this. If churches enforce an expectation that homosexual Christians live a life of celibacy out of obedience to Scripture, how can the church effectively minister to them? So, if we're going to ask people to live a celibate lifestyle as a homosexual following Christ, that's really no different than what we would ask a single heterosexual Christian to do either. But if we're going to do that, I believe we must provide a robust experience of friendship and community. And what that means is that we are called to embrace those celibate gay Christians as brothers and sisters in Christ. We're called to offer them the same love and the same community that we offer all our brothers and sisters in Christ, regardless of what sin it is that they're wrestling with. And contrary to Anthony Kennedy's opinion, who's one of the court justices, Supreme Court justices, uh, marriage is not the silver bullet to loneliness. As we talked about a couple weeks ago, there are a whole lot of married people out there who are extremely lonely. And there are a whole lot of people out there who have a different sexual partner every night. And yet when they wake up the next morning, they are more lonely than they were the night before. So we can't simply say that offering marriage and endorsing marriage to these people is preventing them from being lonely. That's simply not what we can believe. The only solution, ultimately, for loneliness is fellowship with Christ and finding a new identity in Christ and finding reconciliation with God through what Christ has done and finding forgiveness of sins and finding a community in the church, finding fellowship of people who can laugh with you and cry with you, being a part of the body of Christ, a body that lasts far longer than any earthly marriage. It's a bond that is much stronger than any type of community rally or community organization, it's an eternal bond. And so the solution to loneliness is not get married. The solution is not have sex with the person you want to have sex with. The solution to loneliness is fellowship with Christ and fellowship in the church. And thus, we as a church must go out of our way to offer community and friendship, authentic community and friendship, meaningful community and friendship to those gay brothers and sisters in Christ living celibate lifestyles. 
So I think that's what ministry is going to look like in the future. I think it's something that we have to really be thinking about in a world that is changing, because the world certainly is changing. And this is one of those things, in light of Friday's ruling, this is one of those things that the church cannot panic about. We are not called to panic about this. This is not the end of the world. Yet we are also called to be truthful and to be bold and to stick with our convictions and stick with what Scripture teaches. That's what ministry looks like. And the question is, are we willing to be a part of it? And are we ready to be a part of it? So that's all the questions uh, that we wanted to address this morning, all the questions that were submitted that were appropriate for this time. Again, there are some questions that were submitted that may not have been addressed. We will find a way to answer those in the days and weeks ahead. If you have more questions, you're obviously welcome to submit them at any time to myself, our elders, anyone at all. Uh, one quick thing I wanted to do before we pray and close out for the day is recommend a few books uh, that have been really helpful to me thinking about these issues. The first one is called Is God Anti-Gay by Sam Alberry. Sam Alberry is a gay celibate Christian, and this is a book that's less than 100 pages thick. You can find it for really cheap on somewhere like Amazon. You could read it in an afternoon. This is a good book to start with if you're thinking about and wrestling with these questions. Another book is called Washed and Waiting, Reflections on Christian Faithfulness and Homosexuality. That's a book written by Wesley Hill. Wesley Hill, like Sam Alberry, is a gay Christian who, out of the lordship to Christ, has decided to live a celibate lifestyle. He works at Wheaton College, a well-respected school, biblical scholar. Uh, that book is simply kind of his memoir of sorts of what it's like being a gay Christian, striving to follow Jesus by being celibate. It's a great book to just hear his perspective and hear the struggles and the temptations and the doubts and the fears that he wrestles with as someone who wrestles with this sin and tries to follow Jesus at the same time. Uh, another book is The Bible and Homosexual Practice, Texts and Hermeneutics by Robert A.J. Gagnon. Uh, this is like a 500-page book, so if you're really bored and have nothing to do, this is a good place to start. If you read this book for fun, you are weird. Uh, I read that book because I get paid to read books like this. Uh, so that's a good place to start. That is an incredibly deep and powerful look at what scripture and history have to say about homosexual practice. And then finally, uh, not to ignore the abortion topic entirely, uh, a book there is by Michael J. Gorman called Abortion and the Early Church, uh, which is just a simple little book about the history of abortion, what the church has believed and held about this issue, how the church has reacted to this issue in the past. So those are all good books that I would recommend uh, that were very helpful to me thinking through these issues. And I pray that you might take advantage of them as well, because we want to continue this conversation. We want to keep thinking about these things, uh, especially as we strive to do ministry in a world that is changing. So. With that, uh, that's all the questions, that's all the answers, that's all the book recommendations. Uh, I'm going to ask Joshua to pray. Uh, the worship band, feel free to come up and get ready to close us out. Uh, talk to one of our elders if you have more questions about anything that's been talked about this morning. Uh, if you have something that you need to pray about, if you have something that you need to get off your chest, talk to one of them during this last song. Uh, we pray that you'll take advantage of that. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your attentiveness. Uh, and let's pray, and then we'll be done. 
That's all the questions and all the answers. And uh, my thanks as well for coming to this edition of the Thor and Jarvis show. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this opportunity that we have to uh, not just examine your word, but reflect on what it says and what it means and how we can best be putting it into practice. Thank you for the chance to uh, review some of the details of uh, what it means to be um, godly men and women, uh, young men and young ladies, Uh, that seek to honor you with the way that we use our bodies and our sexuality and the way that we treat others uh, on that topic as well. Lord, I know that there are um, many more people here that have uh, hard, painful experiences pertaining to the issue of abortion than same-sex marriage. So I pray that uh, not only can we be a church that is uh, a strong community for people of any sexual orientation, but we can also be a warm, welcoming, loving community for those that have um, been impacted by abortion uh, through uh, having one themselves or pressuring somebody into getting one or considering it or any of the ways that abortion has impacted so many people in this country and more than likely, almost certainly, in this church. Thank you for uh, the leaders of this church that uh, try to set the atmosphere of um, warmth and compassion and welcoming. And uh, thank you for Ben in particular as he has led us through this series and uh, through the Bible as we study what it is that you have to say and how we can honor you in the way that we put it into practice. It's in your name that we pray, Lord. Amen.